Mac Power Users, episode 553, Sparky's Wrong, again. Welcome to the Mac Power Users. I'm David Sparks, joined by my fellow co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are you today, Stephen? I'm good, David. How are you? Our feedback bucket overfloweth. We have so much feedback today. It does. There's a lot of stuff in here. Um, going to talk about all sorts of fun things. But uh, I'd like to talk about St. Jude for a second before we get started. Yeah, yeah. let's do it. Let's talk about St. Jude. Yeah, so as this episode comes out, it'll be the middle of September. And throughout September, we have been raising money for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And you may think that that's just a, a, maybe like a random hospital in Memphis. But let me tell you, it is a world-renowned childhood cancer uh, treatment and research facility. My son at six months of age was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And, you know, St. Jude had been in my backyard my whole life. I've, I've always lived in Memphis and kind of knew what they did and, you know, saw that they did these fundraisers and you see the ads, but I really, I didn't get it. And in the matter of a couple of days, we went from having what we thought was a, a healthy six month old to a baby who was going to have surgery and eventually chemotherapy at St. Jude. And my wife and I really got a a crash course in the work that St. Jude does. So in, in the 11 and a half years that uh, our son has been a patient, he's undergone chemotherapy, count, I mean, dozens and dozens of MRIs. We've eaten hundreds, if not thousands of meals on the St. Jude campus, physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy, all of this stuff that goes into cancer treatment. And St. Jude has never billed me. Uh, And they never will. They believe that when you enter into this realm with this fight with childhood cancer, that you should, as a parent, focus on your child, not on the finances. And let me tell y'all that that sounds incredible to hear it in like a podcast. It is unbelievably humbling when you enter that as a parent and you realize that your child is getting the best treatment in the world and you're not going to pay for it. Um, there's, there's one thing though, that's only possible, right? Because of people around the world who donate to St. Jude to keep their doors open, to keep the research and treatment moving forward. So you can go to stjude.org slash relay. You can donate. Uh, we know it's a hard time right now, but, uh, this is an important cause and there's lots of important causes in the world. I, I totally understand that, but this is one that's near and dear to the relay family because of our son. And it is, it is a real, honor to get to speak about St. Jude every fall and to raise money for them. Um, as this episode is released uh, this later this week, so on Friday, September 18th, uh, Mike Hurley and I will be hosting the second annual podcast-a-thon. If you, if you caught this last year, it's, it's kind of like a telethon, right? Like the old telethon idea, but with our content, right? Talking about nerdy stuff with uh, people in the Relay family. And it is going to be obviously a little bit different this year because Mike and I can't be together. Last year we were together and got to really like host the show side by side. This year, obviously, we can't do that, but we're still really excited about it. We started planning for this in February. Like our first meeting, our first emails about Podcastathon 2020, way back in February. And so we've been able to plan and adapt as the world has changed around us, and our our goal is to put on a really awesome six-hour live show that you can watch on Twitch. It'll be on the 
uh, Relay FM YouTube channel later. So if you missed the live stream, you can catch it later. Uh, but we want to continue to raise money for St. Jude, continue to tell people about their message because, gang, it is it is really important. Childhood cancer remains the leading cause of death by disease for children under the age of 15. It's not this wildly rare thing. This impacts lots and lots of people, and it's a real honor to get to uh, to fight back. And let me just add, as someone who has frequently donated to St. Jude, uh, number one, it feels amazing. I mean, you, you do a lot of things in your day, some you're not proud of, some this is one you would be. I'll tell you, it feels mm-hmm. good. Uh, when you donate, they give you updates, but they don't flood you. You know what I mean? Some of these places you give a little money to, and it's like, oh, no, I'm going to get email every day for the rest of my life. St. Jude's doesn't do that. But the emails they send are interesting, and they're, they tell good stories about about kids going through hard times and it, you know, it's, it's, it's useful. Uh, you know, that the money you give is, you know, a hundred percent going to a great cause. And, and uh, what I would challenge you to do as you're sitting there is pick a vice in your life. Maybe you do too much Starbucks or, uh, you buy too much beer or whatever, you know, pick a vice, take the money you're going to spend on that vice for two weeks and just send it to St. Jude. Just that's all, you know, mm-hmm. help yourself build a good habit and uh and help some people out but uh either way uh thank you everybody i know that the mac power users audience is always right there for saint jude they have been even before Stephen was the co-host we were there for you and uh i think that they will be again this year yeah absolutely it's it's really been a really fun september in the fundraising uh we're going to talk a little bit at the end of the show about some of the tech that i've been using because podcast-a-thon is all remote right we're not going to be together and that really changes how we go about it, but that'll be towards the end of the episode today. Yeah. And I, I will say that um, one thing, bit of criticism I have is this challenge you guys have done with these jiggly eye things. Oh yeah. This is terrible. I, I think <laughs> if you're listening, they're doing a thing where like whenever you hit a certain amount of money that's, that's given, uh, what is it again? Uh, for every $250 donated uh, in, in a window of time, uh, so this ends on September 15th. Then we are, Mike and I are each putting a googly eye on yeah. something in our studio. So he started by covering his gaming PC. Uh, I wanted just maximum uncomfortableness. So mine are all uh, just on the side of a, of a piece of furniture on my, uh, <laughs> on in I my hate, office. And I'll put it. a link to the thread. I'm keeping up on Twitter with these. All right. So my donation has paid for several googly eyes yeah. and I, can I, opt out can i just say mm. don't use googly eyes okay, because I'll, it, I'll it, take a couple off for you okay thank you they're very upsetting <laughs> all right they are they are really <laughs> i like last year when you had to put stickers on your it was better you know but mm-hmm. anyway uh that's it uh so we'll talk uh, about your tech on it later and thank you all if you've already donated and if you haven't please consider so um let's get to the feedback for the good old mac power users uh, show follow-up heard a lot. Um, Marcos wrote in cause we talked in the home kit show just last week and I waxed poetic about my Eufy system. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marcos, uh, he's not a fan. He wanted Arlo. So he wrote in and said he looked at everything. He ended up getting the hub and ultra cameras from art uh, from Arlo. He says they're, they're really built well home kit compatible via the hub, just like Eufy. And they're smart about when not to record and they look great. And, um, 
they have just released a camera slash spotlight that he intends to install over the garage. Now, I don't know if that is going to be HomeKit compatible. I was trying to get answers on that on the web before we recorded, and it, it was unclear from the Arlo website. Eufy, as we talked about last week, has one of those, but it does not, at least at this point, it's not HomeKit compatible. Mm-hmm. And uh, his are battery operated and no cabling, just like Yuffie. But, you know, he's a fan of Arlo. I think Arlo's been in this game longer, frankly, than Yuffie. So uh, that is definitely a solution. And I'm really glad that they're HomeKit compatible. Yeah, uh, it's nice that there's options, right? We we spoke about this with Micah. The the camera stuff in particular, there just weren't a lot of choices. You know, HomeKit, HomeKit being able to deal with cameras uh, is actually a pretty pretty new thing to begin with so it's cool to see these uh these other companies getting in and it, it should make the whole ecosystem better right they're, they're going to push back on apple and, and want to make home kit better and then we as consumers not only get a better home kit but we have options so if you prefer one brand over the other you like the aesthetics of one type of camera over the other which is a big deal when they're around your house uh we have options and i'm i'm excited about that yeah. Um, some follow up on my behalf. After we recorded last week, I I was very motivated. So I got online. I ordered one of those outdoor plugs we had talked about with Micah. Um, the Amazon had the uh, a cheaper one available that had two uh, plugs on it. I'm like, that's great. I'll do that one. It refuses to pair with HomeKit, even though it says HomeKit on the box. It just refuses. And oh, no. <laughs> um, so I sent it back and I've ordered an iDevices, which is the one Micah said I was supposed to buy from the beginning. So I don't have it yet, but hopefully I'll have a solution for outdoor lighting. And um, I also ordered and installed the wired Eufy doorbell cam. So my Eufy um, fixation runs a little deeper now. I had never owned a doorbell cam. You know, that was something that a lot of people have been doing for several years. You mm-hmm. know, Ring kind of took this space by storm. Uh, but since I have the Eufy app installed, uh, I thought I'd do that. And I have a wired doorbell, so I, I had power to it. So it's one less, you know, battery to charge. Yeah. And it's great. You know, it it the setup was ridiculously easy. It was connecting two wires. Mm-hmm. So it was not hard at all. And it looks nice. And I've got a running doorbell cam. It connects to my UV base station. So, you know, that 16 gigabytes of storage. Now it also stores the doorbell footage, um, which is kind of funny because now my front door has two camera angles. So it's like you're really <laughs> going in, you know, if you. But, you know, I just want the bad guys to realize, hey, you know what? He's got two cameras on the front door. What's it going to be like inside, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the uh, They don't know a dude with a lightsaber's inside, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And a um and a v- truly vicious 16-pound dog <laughs> <laughs> that will lick you to death. Um Yeah. But, hey, but either, that's enough to drive some people away, I guess. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, you don't know where that tongue's been. I'm just telling you. <laughs> but the uh the the doorbell cam is really great. Um and so it you know, I've always had a, you know, historically had an actual doorbell. So I disconnected that and I've got a little speaker doorbell and now I'm looking into ways to automate it and do some other things with it, maybe connect it to the home kit. And, uh, this is stuff coming with iOS 14. So I'm not sure exactly how much of that I'm going to get in yet, but, and the door doorbell cam is not in home kit, but there's a bunch of posts online where people are talking about that it is, um, imminent that Yuffie is going to do that. Although I've heard that before. I remember when Canary had imminent HomeKit mm-hmm. compatibility yeah. and that never happened. But either way, I'm, I'm happy with it, whether or not it finds its way to HomeKit. So uh, 
So the home kit automation or home automation has gone a little further for me in the last week. And like we said last week, we're going to circle back to this once the dust has settled after iOS 14, because some of this stuff does change in 14. And I think once 14 is out and app developers and everybody kind of get all behind the new actions, then we're going to circle back to that automation because you can do some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. So Dropbox versus iCloud has been kind of a running debate on the show for a while. Uh, I talked about on the show how I was trying to use iCloud as my Dropbox um, renewal was coming up. And I had this, you know, you know, pipe dream that I'd be able to do everything through iCloud and save myself a hundred bucks a month. Actually, it's probably more than that now. I don't know. How much is Dropbox a year now? It's not a hundred bucks a month. That's crazy pants. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I misspoke a hundred bucks a year, but I, I think they raised it to like 130 a year or something. Yeah. Like I'll put a link in the show notes. The professional one is 1650 a month. If you pay for it annually. So it's like, like 200 bucks a, a year, if not a little bit more. No, I, I don't have the professional. I just have the standard plan okay. that I got years ago, but, but either way. Um, and you know, I talked about the show, how, iCloud still isn't all that really for some of this stuff. In fact, I just had an experience this week where iCloud refused to sync a file, which is, I've never had that happen with Dropbox. Um, but the, uh, so I ended up, you know, sticking with Dropbox, but I kind of talked through it on the show and a bunch of listeners had similar journeys. And the uh, first one was John and he was talking about storage constraints. He said, uh, um, he had the same desire, but he couldn't do it for the same reason. He likes to canary, uh, carry a significant number of client files and research on his iPad where he can access them whenever and whenever he needs. He says the MacBook has 512 uh, SS, uh, gigabyte SSD. So he attempted to move the files from Dropbox to iCloud Drive and noticed that he was getting an out of space warning on his laptop and contacted Apple Care and they told him, sorry, there's no way you can have files on the iCloud drive without having the same files reside on the Mac. Now that's not exactly true. Just me entering commentary here. You can say store in the cloud and then it'll only download as it thinks it needs. But the problem there is what does it think, right? Dropbox with the smart sync feature uh, allows you to store the files completely online and just pull down what you want. And you can manually pull files down to have them on the local drive and others you can just leave up in the cloud. I think Dropbox has a better interface in that it gives the user more control. And that was the problem John was running into. Yeah, after adding the folder sharing that finally showed up in iCloud Drive really not that long ago, uh, this is kind of the next thing on the list for me for iCloud Drive being a Dropbox replacement is more fine-grained control over what is always locally downloaded and synced Versus things that I'm okay leaving on the cloud and pulling, uh, pulling as needed. And you know those some of those parts are there. They just need to kind of put them all together. I agree with you. They need to put them with an interface that makes it really easy to understand what's local and what's not, and and how to download them or how to make them online only again. Dropbox has all of that, and Apple really needs to catch up here. Yeah, I mean, just this week my laptop was not syncing the keyboard maestro data file you know keyboard maestro you can sync your scripts and i put it on icloud like a crazy man i guess i should have put it on dropbox but for whatever reason it just stopped downloading it to the the laptop and the laptop had an older version of the scripts and i i tried everything it was like because it says it's in the cloud 
but often if it's in the cloud, you right click the file, it says download now and it downloads it and you know, you've got the most recent version on local storage, but the download now button didn't show up, you know, and I, I looked into it. There's, you know, there were some people on the Apple forums talking about having the same problem and there's really no fix. And, uh, I ended up just unsyncing the laptop from, uh, iCloud documents. So I turned it off, waited like an hour. I turned it back on, left it overnight. And then I came back the next morning and it had the right file and everything was fine again. But come on, man, you shouldn't have to do that. Yeah, it should be smarter than that. The the other thing, though, uh, in iCloud's favor, you talked about iCloud folder sync. I'm, mm-hmm. uh, you know, finishing up the paperless, the new paperless field guide. And I have run that whole project with iCloud shared folders. I have a, an editor friend who helps me. He looks at the stuff after I finish him to make sure I didn't blow it. And so I've got these massive size files full of video and screencasts and everything. And um, we've got like five folders shared with the other. We just kind of do the workflow by folder. You know, one is, you know, from me to him, two is him back to me, you know, and it has worked fine without a single problem. And that way, you know, my editor friend, um, JF Brissett, he's been on the show before, but uh, he, uh, he, you know, he doesn't have to buy a Dropbox subscription. He can just use his iCloud storage. And mm-hmm. It's been absolutely fine. No problem. So it's like some days iCloud treats you really nicely and some days not so much. (laughs) Uh, More people wrote in about this. Um, uh, Several people wrote in to say, hey, Sparky, just stop paying for it. Get a free Dropbox account. There are many regrets I have in my life. Um, I was one of the very first people to use Dropbox back in the day when it was like a competitor with SugarSync, if you remember that app. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but the uh, so I got on the Dropbox train early. My regret is I never used the affiliate code. Like if I had just like posted at Max Sparky, hey, sign up for Dropbox like 10 years ago when it started and mm-hmm. used that affiliate code, I would have enough space to do this now without paying the money yeah. every year. But I never right. did that. So I actually <laughs> don't have a whole lot of extra free space. I don't even know if they do that anymore, but the, um, so I, I missed the boat on that one. So that's why I'm paying for it. Uh, several people wrote in to say, well, I'll just use transmit rather than install the app. And that's a good idea. I probably should do that. The, uh, ultimately I just installed the app. Uh, TJ wrote in and said, Resilio sync is a good way to run it too. And, uh, Reto, I don't know if that is your name, but he, somebody wrote in with the name R-E-T-O, which is very cool. You know, almost feels like a, a Matrix listener. Uh, but uh, he wrote in and said that he's using a command line tool to do all of this stuff. And I thought that was kind of a cool idea as well. Hmm. Um, there's a Dropbox uploader and R clone are uh, command line tools that you can run to Dropbox storage. And you can mount Dropbox in something like Transmit which is a really nice FTP client for the Mac. Unfortunately, yeah. not on iOS anymore. Uh, they they killed that version. But the syncing that TJ recommended, uh, Resilio, that is, it's kind of a different thing. Like it is kind of running your own version of Dropbox. They have their own apps and it works uh, basically like P2P syncing, uh, point-to-point syncing. And sure. so it is, I've played with it. In the past, it runs on everything, uh, including some network attached storage boxes, which is cool. I know it's it's fans may disagree with me here, but it is not as simple as just installing something like Dropbox or 
something like OneDrive and just it being handled for you, you're much more hands-on uh, with something like this. It's still a powerful option, but it is not necessarily for everybody. Now, I uh, I did not research Resilio. So are you telling me that it, it doesn't use Dropbox storage? It actually just uses, you know, a different bucket? Yeah, it, it has its own sync engine between your devices directly. Yeah. Okay. So it, it uses yeah. a BitTorrent-style syncing from your Mac to your other Mac or to your PC over the internet. Yeah, that, those are great so long as they work. Uh, the, the problem with solutions like that for me, and I'm sure TJ can let me know, but it feels to me like you get that working and then there's like a software update or something and suddenly it's not working anymore. Ultimately, what I did was I paid Dropbox. I bit the bullet. I mean, with the law practice, I was probably kidding myself to think I could ever get away entirely from Dropbox because I work with too many people that are not on Apple platforms. And everybody seems, even people who are not nerds that listen to shows like Mac Power Users, seems to understand Dropbox. So Mm -hmm. it is very convenient for moving big piles of files around. And and now my next goal is now that I'm paying for it, I've just got to figure out, well, what am I going to do with this space? You know, um, like I'm going to, I've added like a secondary photos online backup to it, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm just like, I'm looking at some things I can do since I'm paying for the space. I might as well use it. Um, I'm still using iCloud as my primary sync engine because it's just so nice and integrated, especially when you're on an iPad, but the, uh, but I do have Dropbox too, so I'm not going to just leave the space empty. How could I do that? Oh boy! Uh, so that, that's I think that's Dropbox stuff. I'm yeah. I'm like you. I'm stuck with it. I don't have the hatred of Dropbox that a lot of people do. Like I know the Mac app is kind of gross and it's doing stuff I probably don't want to know about. But my entire workflow is based on it. Everyone I work with uses it, so it is just part of my life. Yeah, and I don't hate it either, but I just feel like their app is kind of gross. And it's like, it just, I feel like it's an example of a company that lost its way. I mean, all they did was sync files and that was great, but it seems like they're trying to do more now. But at the end of the day, the reason I just, rather than using Transmit, the reason I installed the app is I am, you know, I'm a Hazel nut and I have so much automation going on when I've got Dropbox installed because I've got those addressable folders. And that's pretty nice. So, you know, there you go. All right. Uh, Markdown. We talked, we did a whole show on Markdown. Lots of great feedback on that show from listeners. I was always worried about shows like that because you're kind of describing, I won't say how to program, but, you know, something pretty technical that you do with a keyboard on an audio podcast. But I heard from a lot of listeners um, that really enjoyed that episode and now they're actively using Markdown. So, so happy to hear. Uh, that there's a bunch of new Markdown experts out there. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, I I shared the same sort of hesitation about that. I was like, is this going to come across? And I listened back to it, and uh, I think it did. And it is uh, is really cool to see Markdown being picked up by people who haven't used it before. Uh, We did have some feedback uh, from Thurston saying that there are ways to publish Markdown basically directly to the web. Um, they link to this, um, GitHub repo and anyways, you can do a bunch of stuff. Like you can, uh, have Markdown render HTML on the server side with something like WordPress. It just does it for you. A lot of like smaller CMSs are fully based on Markdown. So it is, I think maybe we paint it too strongly as it is a tool that then you convert to HTML and then HTML doesn't goes and does the work on the web. 
but there are lots of things uh, in the world that just take Markdown directly, which makes this even easier. Then you don't have to worry about the HTML step. Yeah, we. I think that that was a good point Thurston made. Is we really didn't talk about Markdown as the destination. We often talk about it as the starting point, but it, it can be the destination as well. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Hover. Go to hover.com slash MPU and make a name for yourself and get 10% off any domain. Now, when you have a big idea, where do you go? For a ton of entrepreneurs and people that just want to have a website, Hover is that big leap because your business starts with a domain name. Hover has over 300 domain name extensions to choose from. No matter what you want to build, there's a domain name waiting for it. And they have excellent technical support to answer any questions you may have. And they're dedicated to getting you online, not upselling you. And that's a big deal for me. When I go to buy a domain name, I don't want it to feel like a game where the company is trying to rip me off. Hover is just actually trying to help me out, get me the domain I want with the features I need and no more. Hover has free who is privacy so the bad guys don't get your personal information a very clean user interface, and monthly sales on popular top-level domains, so it's easy to see why Hover is the popular choice for people starting a business. I started my business with Hover. SparksESQ.com, I bought one day just on a lark, thinking, you know what, maybe I may actually one day do that. And I owned the domain actually for a couple of years before I actually got the guts to jump out, you know, of the firm and start my own business. But uh, that's not the only thing I've bought through Hover. I bought my kids' names through Hover when they were really little. And now as they're turning into adults, I can hand over the keys to their own personal domains. It's actually a great gift to give to people. Like whenever you know somebody's having a baby, rather than give them, you know, a silly pair of shoes, Give them a domain name of the baby's name. You can do all of that at Hover. So we know that you like user experiences that are intuitive and things that work just straight out of the box. So I know you'll appreciate Hover. Their user interface is really simple, clean, and easy to navigate. Buy your domain and start using it today. It's that simple. Go to hover.com slash MPU and get a 10% discount on all new purchases. Hover is a longtime sponsor of the Mac Power Users. They've been supporting us a long time, and I am happy to have them as a sponsor because I'm also a happy customer. So make a name for yourself with Hover. Once again, that's hover.com slash MPU. And our thanks to Hover for their support of the Mac Power Users and all of Relay FM. You know, I've heard you talk about that before, having your kids' names as yeah. domains. I've never done that. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> I logged into Hover during the ad read and I'm adding them. I, you know, it's funny because I didn't, I just told them about it last month. You know, it never really occurred to me, but one of them is in her 20s now. And I'm like, well, wait a second. Why am I paying for this? <laughs> <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm still paying for it. That's how it goes. But the, uh, but I told her, hey, guess what? Um, I have your name as a domain name. And she's like, really? And it's like, I don't know, when your kids get older and you can do anything that impresses them, that's a win, you know? <laughs> and I was lucky enough to get both of them. They they both got the .com. They're ready. But I've done it also. I mean, this is no longer the ad read, but just kind of an MPU tip. When people have babies, I buy like the first, you know, two or three years and I give it to them. I don't pay for it for 20 years. But the uh, I'll just buy two or three years and give it to the parents. And then, you know, it is a little weird giving somebody an obligation, right? but they all love it. You know, they're like, Oh, that's amazing. And then, you know, they can go in and pay for it and, you know, they're dealing with a reputable company, but 
But yeah, I think it's kind of fun to give somebody their domain name as a as a birth present. It is cool. Okay, enough of that. Enough of that. Let's talk about more feedback. Uh, in addition to um, the other topics we covered, we also got feedback on RSS. And Jonathan had a great idea. He uses uh, RSS in DevonThink because you can attach an RSS feed to DevonThink. So why not just capture it in there? It's not like a historical RSS reader, but it is definitely a way to capture feeds. Mm hmm. Hey, I found this uh, great blog post um, that I'm going to put in the show notes, kind of walking you through it, complete with with screenshots. Uh, I think I mentioned this, but I do this for uh, the podcasts I'm on, so I can quickly search what uh, things we've talked about on what shows. And then I have a, a few things from 512 Pixels, because in WordPress you can do a feed per category. So like I have a collection of all of my knowledge base articles of the week because inevitably I find something really cool and then I find out that I linked to it three years ago. I don't want to repeat myself. Um, and yeah, so it is it is really cool to do this. And, you know, it just goes into your Devon Think database. Uh, my, I have mine going in as HTML documents and I can just very quickly skim them. It's all searchable. So if you have a, a website that you need to basically have all the data from this may be a really good way of doing it. No, I, I like I do it too on Max Sparky and I do it with the whole fire hose. I mean, to the extent my website is the fire hose, but the, um, uh, if there's anything that you do regularly, um, or maybe like your company has a blog and you just want to capture all of that. Um, Devin think is definitely, I think one of the better solutions for archival stuff. And then once you do that, you feed it into the Devon Think, you know, corpus, and then it can do all of its artificial intelligence and everything else with it. So, yeah, we should have mentioned that. Yeah, it's a cool use of it. We had uh, several listener questions, too. Um, one of them I thought was interesting from Glenn from Texas said uh, he'd like to hear a segment about maintaining old photos, whether it's scanning pictures, negatives or slides what's the best way to get this done and not break the bank as well as what's the best way to apply metadata like the date and location. He says, I'm sure there's a lot of us that have thousands of photos. We'd like to have digitized and what have you guys done? So I can tell you when my, uh, when my mom died uh, now it was about 10 years ago, the, um, I took, we took, a, she had pictures, but not as many, you know, as you would think, because, she was of the generation that bought two rolls of film a year, you know, so it wasn't crazy, but we had a box of pictures, maybe a thousand or so pictures, and we sent them off and got them scanned. I don't own a good image scanner. I'm, I'm big on document scanners, but I don't, I just don't have the patience for one of those, you know, high end photo scanners. Mm -hmm. You got to sit there and watch it. And I wasn't going to do that for two thousand pictures. So uh, we picked a service at the time that was reputable and they did a good job scanning all those images and we got them back. And I have been slowly over the course of 10 years, just getting them done. I have a folder in photos called or an album called growing up sparks and all those pictures are in there. And I go in there on occasion and sort some of them and tag them and date them. So I have not done it all yet. I just do it as needed. Like when I need an old picture of my sister, I'll go through and handle a bunch of pictures of my sister and do the best I can in terms of metadata. Uh, and I just put years 
And if I don't know the exact year, I put like uh, on the, you know, 1960 or 1965 or 1970. Like I know it's like within that five years. Sure. And it's not perfect, but it allows me at least to, you know, get to some of them. Yeah, I think you've you've kind of hit it. This is unfortunately just a pretty manual process. Yes, there are services where you can ship them everything and they scan it for you. But as far as the organization and tagging and everything, I don't know of a better way than what you're doing, which is slowly chipping away at it. Now, there are some tricks and photos you can apply tags or location data or, or date data to multiple photos at a time. Uh, there's also a really cool Mac app called Retro Batch. Looking it up now from our friends at Flying Meat. And it is a a tool for automating information about photos. And so say that you have a lot of these um, and you you want to add metadata to many of them at once, or you know, maybe they're sorted into folders somehow and you want to do things based on that. Retro Batch can do all of that. There's a 14-day trial, which is really cool because it can be it can be hard to kind of wrap your head around what you may need. Uh, but this may be a way to do it too, especially if you're not necessarily putting them in photos, but they're going to stay in Finder or maybe they're in a shared Dropbox or something where family members can get them. This can be a nice way to do this a little bit faster. But yeah, it, it's, it's just going to be a lot of work. That's kind of how it is. Yeah. I mean, have you gone down that rabbit hole yet? Or I guess your kids are young enough. You took all your pictures after the digital revolution. Yeah. But, you know, I've got some family pictures of older family members and my wife and I have scanned a lot of that stuff over the years. We, I just have like this decent flatbed scanner. It's nothing nice. I just bought it like Office Max one day or something. But again, that just takes time, right? Because you're putting photos in. Uh, one thing I will say, if you're Doing these photos, and, and maybe your photos are like the ones that we scanned where there's handwriting on the back of them, like maybe someone's name yeah. or a date, uh, capture that as well. So even if you're just scanning into the Finder, um, one thing that you can do in Finder is uh, if you get information on a on a image or on anything, you have the tags, but then you also have comments. And so you could use that potentially to store some of that data until you get around to organizing them later, because chances are you're going to scan in a batch and then you're going to process over the course of years, probably. Uh, so you can capture some of that while you're scanning, you're going to save future use and work. Yeah. I would add one more app I'd recommend on this. I covered this in the photos field guide. Um, I was looking for uh, iPhone apps to scan pictures. Cause often you'll have it where it's like you're visiting family, you know, back when we used to do that mm -hmm. and somebody will have a snapshot and they're like, Oh, look at this picture. Isn't this cool? And you want to scan it right on the spot. You know, it's not, may not even be your image Google. And you know, I I'm kind of not always that excited about recommending Google apps, but Google photo scan is an iPhone app. And I tried a bunch of them and this was by far the best. The Google Photo Scan does a thing where you hold a snapshot, set it on the table, light it well, and then it has you move the camera to four points on the photo. And by doing that, it removes the glare and, you know, all the weird light stuff you get from taking a picture of a picture. And it's just a great little utility to have on hand. Cool. Yeah, I had to come across this. This looks really neat. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one that Google made. <laughs> 
I, I, I'm guessing you're feeding it into the Google system. I don't know. Probably. But either way, it's it's great. And I've used it many times when we're like visiting family and somebody has a funny picture of me wearing my Davy Crockett hat from 1972. <laughs> yes, I had one. Yes, I had one. Of course you did. All right. Um, there's more on Steven's photo, photo album non- nonsense from Nathan. And uh, Nathan took me to task. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but David is incorrect about the one dimensionality of photos. Well, Nathan, just ask my wife. I'm incorrect about many things quite often. Um, a given photo can be in multiple albums at once. And I like smack my forehead. Of course. How come you didn't call me on that? Of course you can put an album in multiple places. So I, the whole argument I made is that, you know, albums are one dimensional, but that's not true with photos. You can put the photo in as many albums as you want. Yeah. I guess it went right by me too. Yeah. I, I don't know what I was thinking. So thanks Nathan for pointing that out. Uh, he shares your, your distrust for photo search. He says it's getting better, but try to search for July three hyphen five or December 20-26, for example, or if you celebrate on different days, on different years. But I, at the end, I may be right. He says that the time payoff and making the albums may not be good enough. And I think it's, you know, everybody choose your own. It's there for a reason. Mm-hmm. I use albums. I just don't use them as much as you do. And just the fact that you make sure every photo lands in, a, in some album, that's mm-hmm. the part that just has me shaking my head. You know. So so this is when I give you an update on this. Oh, okay. Since that episode, I, I, my, my album structure is all still here. I haven't yeah. blown anything away, but I have not sorted my not in albums, smart album. So, you know, I, I said this, I had a smart album that yeah. just scooped up everything that wasn't in another album. And now there's 223 items in this. And I've gone through these and I have tagged them and I've made sure they have face data, but I haven't put them in albums. So I'm just going to see how this feels for a while and report back again later, I think. Does it feel like itchy? Like when you wake up, is there chaos. Like something buzzing in the back of your head? About Total your... chaos, man. <laughs> I, I used to do it like you, but that was a long time ago and I got over it. So maybe you will too. Uh, so Mike wrote in with a question that I felt like just goes to the very heart of Stephen Hackett's soul, um, Mac longevity. Um, and he wants us to talk about, um, you know, just how long or how much time we're getting over Macs. Um, Mike is using a Mac pro from 2012 and it's still going strong. And, um, he's also got a 2009 Mac pro he's using as an hour overpowered game emulation machine. (laughs) <laughs> and he was just saying, you know, they have a 2011 17-inch MacBook in their house that still works, and he loves the big size of it. And just, you know, comparing that to his friends where the upgrade cycle on a PC, a Windows PC, is two or three years, whereas a Mac is much longer than that. And he says people don't talk about that enough. And, you know, the other thing he mentioned was Apple does a good job of supporting older operating systems. And um, so if you've got hardware that isn't ancient, it's probably going to run the most current operating system or very close to the most current operating system. And just, you know, that's a general idea about Mac ownership that he doesn't think it's enough, you know, sunlight. Yeah. A couple of things here. So very often you'll be in a situation where your Mac is marked vintage by Apple, which means getting a repair for it is a lot trickier, but it's still supported by the current OS. The 
product always jumps out at me with this is the iMac. Just for whatever reason, that's always the one I think of. Uh, but I'll put the vintage and obsolete products list in the show notes. And a lot of these machines that are more recent are still fully supported by something like Catalina or the last couple of OSs. And Apple does push security updates for the current operating system and then back to. And so you can be back a little ways. You're not going to get all the new features. Sometimes you get a new version of Safari. Sometimes you don't. But you're going to be up to date from a, a security standpoint. But past that, so say, so for example, I had uh, someone pretty recently, they were running an iMac. It was old enough that it had an optical drive steel. It was aluminum, but it had an optical drive. And they were running, I want to say Mountain Lion on it, maybe Mavericks, a pretty old version of, of Mac OS X. I don't remember exactly, but they bought a, one of the new iMacs, one of the 2020s, and I helped them get everything transferred over. And it went shockingly well. Like I kind of prepped like, hey, you know, we're moving some some app data and stuff up many, many, many versions of Mac OS. We may have some cleaning up to do. Uh, but it basically all totally worked except for one 32-bit app that, of course, uh, doesn't work in, in Catalina. Uh, so even though you're on older hardware, software story can be good for a long time. And I think that uh, Mike is correct in saying that this is something that the Mac is really good at and something that we definitely don't don't talk about in terms of consumer machines. Now, in the professional environment, uh, a lot of big corporations look at the cost of a device over its lifetime. And if you can get four, five, six years out of an iMac where you would get maybe only three or four years out of a PC desktop, even though the Mac may be more expensive, maybe it evens out over time. There are a lot of factors in that. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's absolutely right that these Macs can run for a really long time. Yeah, so that got me thinking about the old Macs in my life. And I want to hear about yours in a minute. But the um, but in, in my house, uh, my, I was thinking my wife's computer, I was thinking it was like six years old. So I went and looked at it before we recorded today. It was introduced in April 2010. So it's now 10 years old. Wow. <laughs> and it's a 13-inch MacBook Pro that she's been super happy with. But it is starting now to show its age. You know, the speakers, sure. uh, now the speakers don't make noise. They sound like Cylons when you play music through it. The Bluetooth radio about once a month stops working, but if she reboots it, it starts working again. And the trackpad is stiff, but the battery isn't swollen. So I'm not really sure what the cause of that is, but, hmm. but um, she, you know, it's fine for what she does. I mean, it, the, the it's not that the computer is too slow. It's, you know, it's not the usual problems with old computers. It's just that the hardware is just failing after 10 years. Yeah, we have a plan. You know, if Apple releases uh, an ARM, I'm sorry, an Apple Silicon MacBook, I'm going to give her mine and then I'm going to get myself one of those because, you know, that's how I roll. Yeah, man. But she now she's teasing me about it. She's like, take good care of my laptop. You know, she's, she's ready for the, you know, for the transition. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, but 10 years, man, that's pretty great. And then we had, what was the first generation 12-inch MacBook, you know, the one with the original bad keyboard? Yeah, 2015. Yeah, we had one of those and my daughter was using it for school and it just failed on her. I mean, it couldn't hold a charge and the keyboard was, you know, doing what those keyboards did. But, you know, when I got her a new MacBook Air, re you know, in the last year, 
I actually called Apple and the keyboard was still under the warranty because they extended the warranty. So I sent it in. Apple replaced the keyboard, replaced the battery. And um, we've got a family member who, you know, doesn't have a lot of money right now. And I gave it to her and she's loving it. You know, she thinks it's the best computer she's ever had. And so I don't know, how old is that computer? Uh, five years now. Yeah. And it's, it's going fine. So, you know, even one that doesn't have the best reputation is still totally usable after five years. But, it, but you know, you, you are a guy who has a lot of Macs and I know you've got like really old Macs, but I wanted to ask you, what's the oldest Mac in the Hackett operations uh, still in operation? Uh, the, the kids are using a 2015, a 2015 12 inch MacBook, the one that you just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, they're using that for some school stuff. Now they have school supplied windows machines, but they're also using the MacBook, And so that is in use almost every day by somebody in the household. And yeah, it's, it's slow for what I would need it for, but if you just need an around the house computer, it's totally, totally fine. And it's running Catalina. It will, it will run big Sur. And so that machine is just trucking along, uh, you know, I guess I'm just waiting for the second keyboard to die on it. But other than that, just trucking right along. Well, I was really impressed with Apple um, support on that because I felt like that can be, I thought that can be, would probably be out of warranty, even with the extended warranty. Cause I think it's keyboard number three that they put in it. And I sent it to them and I was sure the battery was out of warranty. Cause I mean, why would you warrant a battery after five years, but they just, replace the battery and replace the keyboard and sent it back to me and there was no charge. So I don't know. I'll take it, you know, <laughs> anyway, um, I'm sure the listeners have a lot of old Macs servicing them as well. This would be a good thing to talk about in the forums. I like hearing those stories. Yeah. Yeah. It is cool to see, see them running. Uh, you know, I think iMacs, Mac minis desktops, I think have a tendency to last longer just cause they're not getting banged around and, I mean, when's the last time someone spilled water on a Mac Mini compared to a MacBook Air, right? They they, yeah. they tend to lead more boring lives, and that is good for them from a longevity standpoint. Well, if Apple releases both a MacBook Pro and a MacBook Air in the Apple Silicon, I'm going to have like an existential crisis. That's what I'm just telling you right now. I can see it <laughs> on the horizon. Okay, uh, Chris is, uh, wrote in about USB-C. We've talked about it quite a bit on the show off and on. It seems like every feedback show comes up. Um, he bought a MacBook Air, and he decided he wanted to go all in with USB-C, but discovered USB-C is a little confusing. You know, he's like, uh, you know, sometimes he needs a USB-C that, you know, there's different, there's different speeds, there's different types of it. And he also was looking for the... Uh, the hypothetical USB-C hub. And we've talked about that on the show as well. The, uh, you know, for the USB-A standard, you can buy hubs where you plug one port into your Mac and you have like seven USB-A hub, you know, ports. You can't do that with the current model of USB-C. I believe with the new spec for Thunderbolt, you can have like a four-part hub, but that's not even out yet. Uh, Steven, help us out. I mean, yeah, that's... That's basically right. There's just not a lot of hubs that give you extra USB-C, extra USB-C ports. Even something like a Thunderbolt dock, which is way more expensive, probably only has two uh, at most. It's just uh, there's not a lot of them. Um, I like Chris's 
idea of like just going into USB-C. I did that uh, when I got my iMac Pro where, you know, a bunch of cables that I had going to it, my old iMac, I just swapped out for USB-C versions. And yeah, you know, I spent some more money, but I didn't want a bunch of adapters behind my iMac. And, uh, and now with the Mac Pro, that's really paid off. Even though it has two, two USB-A ports in it, I think I'm only using one of them. Uh, and it's going from the battery backup to the Mac Pro over USB-A. So it is it is nice to move to all USB-C, but if you are in the situation where you need more than one device, you're almost stuck going back to USB-A. Uh, if you need a hub that can provide power to external devices, you're probably going to need to look at a hub that's, that's powered. A lot of these sort of passive hubs, um, I think they can transfer some power, but you got to read the fine print and they definitely aren't, aren't going to charge for something like an iPad, right? At, at most, you may be lucky to charge an iPhone off of some of these hubs. So that's where some research and planning comes in, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Chris ends up his email saying, isn't this the wave of the future? Question mark. You know, it is and it isn't. I, mean, I feel like it is better. Like it's a symmetrical plug. You don't have to worry about, you know, what, am I holding it wrong before I plug it in? It's smaller. There's a lot to like about it, but it doesn't have all of the features we had with the old technology just yet. And, uh, oh, and it's also like wicked faster, but it's, um, that's probably the reason for the holdup on the hub, but the, uh, either way, you know, it's going to take a little bit longer. Hang in there, Chris. Mm-hmm. This episode of Mac power users is brought to you by Mars edit, the premium blog editing app for the Mac. We've all heard the old adage that you shouldn't write in the browser you know, don't load up WordPress and, and be typing in Safari and then something bad happened. So there's that. But there's also the thing that, you know, a lot of us just want nice Mac apps. We just want to use an app that is native to Mac OS with the controls, with the integrations we're used to, like with photos and, and Finder, all this stuff. And that's what Mars Edit is. It lets you write, preview, and publish to your blog from the comfort of your Mac. You can save drafts of your posts locally and then fine-tune them when you're ready to share. It works with WordPress, micro.blog, Tumblr, and many other services. You can also use it to download an entire history of your blog. We talked about that earlier in the episode about using RSS and DevonThink. We can do this in Mars Edit as well. Mars Edit is one of those Mac apps that I've been using so long, I can't even remember the before times. 512 Pixels runs on WordPress and Mars Edit is how I publish to it. I very, very rarely see the WordPress admin screens on my site. I have to log in occasionally to do something, but if I'm posting an article, if I'm fixing a typo, updating a page, even creating a new page, I'm doing that in Mars Edit because I want that native Mac experience where I can focus on my writing. I can use the Mac's built-in spelling and grammar checker. I can bring in photos from Apple Photos. I just, this is the way I want to work. MPU listeners can get 20% off the one-time purchase cost of Mars Edit by going to marsedit.com slash MPU. That's marsedit.com slash MPU. Go there now to check it out. And our thanks to Mars Edit for sponsoring Mac Power Users. Now, you may recall, I think may have been the last feedback show, or at some point I talked about the fact that I ended up having two sets of AirPods that I'm rocking both the standard AirPods and the AirPods Pro. And I felt a little guilty admitting on the show. I mean, come on, who needs two pairs of AirPods, right? 
I am not alone. I got yeah. so much email from people saying, oh, me too. I did the same thing. I have an update, guys, an important safety tip. If you have two pair of AirPod, do, do not charge them both at the same time on a desk in a public area of your home. Is this for mocking reasons? Or? No. Um, okay. My wife walks in. She's like, wait, you got two pair of AirPods? There it is. <laughs> You've been found out. <laughs> yes. She's like, I don't have any AirPods. You have two. And I was thinking, and then I had like a split second where I could have said, well, darling, of course you may pick one. You may have one. Or I could have said, yeah, I do. I have two. Or I could have said, would you like a pair? I will buy you a pair. And in that moment, I went with option three. I said, would you like a pair? Because I don't want to give up two pair. And she says, no, nah, I don't think I want them. But the, so I kind of escaped that. But yeah, I think it's probably a bad idea to charge them on the table at the same time. Yeah, you got to keep that secret. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. You got busted. Yeah. Totally yeah, I, busted. I got, I got, you have two pair? Wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but can't you see? They're different. That's right. This case is taller than this one is. <laughs> yes. Uh, we talked about TJ earlier. He wrote in with a, an email about his Cal Digit as well. This Cal Digit. A plug-in USB hub that Stephen brought up in the last episode has become a running thing on the Mac Power users. A bunch of listeners have these. Micah was talking about his last week. In fact, I think TJ bought his at the recommendation of Micah. But TJ is plus one on that. He's got a webcam, a microphone, stream deck, a five terabyte uh, two uh, SSD attached to it. Um, I'm sorry, two terabyte T5 SSD attached to it. So he's got like a bunch of stuff plugged into this thing. And, um, you know, as I've read that, it just occurred to me using one of those, I could plug in my two terabyte SSD and use that shorter cable to get it under the table because yeah. things on top of the table. Anyway, sorry. I, uh, I just went down a nerd rabbit hole. You could tape the entire CalDigit Thunderbolt dock to the back of your display. Ah, uh, or underneath my desk, attach it underneath my desk. Pretty heavy. I mean, this, this is like a thing, right? Like it's and, metal. And it's, hot. it's a metal box with heat fins around the outside. Yeah, it is hot. And after we, uh, so TJ uses it for a bunch of stuff. Everybody seems to like these things. One of the points TJ makes, we kind of talked about, you know, the right side versus left side ports on the MacBook Pro. And we'll put a link in the show notes about this. I more covered this about the right side ports being better for this. And like, that's a thing. Yeah, it's an issue with the Thunderbolt bus inside the MacBook Pros. It is primarily a problem, though, on the 13-inch. So if you have the 15 or the new 16, uh, you don't have to worry about the the bandwidth issue. And then there's this article, which is talking about if you charge on one side, you could make higher CPU usage. I don't Look, I mean, no offense to iMore or people who have brought this up. I've never seen this. Like, I didn't know this was a thing until it came up in this in this feedback. Uh, I knew about the the right side on the 13 inch being slower, but I don't know. I mean, I'm sure this is a thing, but I don't know how how big of a deal it is. Yeah. So I I bought um right after we recorded the episode where you talked about your Cal Digit, I got an email from Anchor because I bought so much stuff from Anchor over the years. Apparently, I'm on their like whale club or something, you know. Perfect. And uh, they had a brand new hub of their own. Um, it was like really discounted 
at launch. So I bought one and it was like half the price of the Cal digit. So I, uh, I thought it'd be fun to have it on my desk anyway, just cause it's got all the, you know, SD card slots and it's got, you know, it, it's just great. Even with an iMac, nice having additional ports available to you. And like I can full power USB-C to my iPad, which I keep on, on my desk right under my computer. So I've had that thing for about a month now and it just fit right in. I'm real happy with it. I don't know if it's as good as Cal digits cause I don't have one of those, but it's smaller and it does what I need it to do. And it gets really hot. I, I was kind of, surprised by how warm it gets mm-hmm. yeah it's a lot of data and power to be slinging around yeah uh, one thing that's cool too is the the cal digit at least will also work with windows so mike hurley my partner at relay has uh, a pc notebook with thunderbolt and he's been doing a lot of video streaming and stuff as part of the saint jude project fundraiser we're doing and so he's used his cal digit with his pc notebook uh same way we use it on the mac right more ports and more convenient places uh, but he's been happy with it there as well. Yeah. Uh, Breen wrote in about bookmarks. We talked about RSS. We didn't talk about bookmarks. But the reason I put this email in is Breen has 1,400 bookmarks. Holy moly. <laughs> yeah. I actually, I need Breen, if, you, if you're listening, send me a screenshot. I just got to see 1,400 bookmarks. I got to see that. Does, does that get synced over iCloud? I mean, I, I need to know more about this. I yeah. demand details. Yeah, I, I agree. I do use bookmarks and I like them, but I don't have 1400. No. Um, but also we had a bunch of people write in about read it later services and web storage. I really am a fan of those services, especially for stuff you want to be able to read. When you use that, they often store the articles in your account for you. So if the website ever takes those, the material down, you still have access to it. We're going to probably cover that in another show, read it later services, because that's a whole thing. But I have some real-time follow-up. I have a total of 73 bookmarks. I have more than that, but not Not, not 1,400. I mean, look, they are they, they can be valuable, right? And if you have a lot of them, like it doesn't hurt anything keeping them around. Now, one of the nicest things about it in Safari, and I think Chrome does this too, that if you start typing – you get your uh your in Safari you get your top hits, you get open tabs, Google suggestions, but one of those things in the drop down is bookmarks and history. So you can almost use them as a sh- as a shortcut technique in Safari to get to URLs faster. Yeah, yeah, and Alfred does that too. And I uh I actually go through a couple times a year and just kind of audit the bookmarks um because they just you know, they, they multiply over time. Right. And I don't like having too many because then when I go to use them and the way I like them, I can't find the ones I want. Mm-hmm. Uh, something people should know, but if you don't, you can a- add folders of bookmarks within directories, which can be really handy. Like if you like for my law thing, for instance, I've got several States that I work with. I have clients, I have companies in different States. So I have to work with their secretary of state and, you know, various groups in, in the state for things I do for their companies. I have like a little separate group for each state so I can just get to what I need. You know, if you think about this logically, a hierarchy makes sense. And I'm sure that Breen has a lot of hierarchy to get 1400 because, you know, there's only so much room on the screen, but <laughs> I want to hear about this. Let me know, Breen. Me too. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. Go to onepasswordcom MPU in all caps to get 20% off of your subscription. 
Now, 1Password is the app and service that allows you to be safe on the internet. It helps you create strong, unique passwords that you can use for every different website you go to. And all you need to remember is your 1Password. It actually lets you have both security and convenience. You can have your cake and eat it too. I've been a longtime subscriber of 1Password. In fact, just did my renewal for my whole family. And it's a great service. They just added an update to one of their services that I wanted to spend a minute talking about today. Now, for a while now, 1Password has had what they call Watchtower. And Watchtower is a service that looks at your login accounts to keep you advised if there's any problems. Like if you have a login at a website that becomes compromised, I mean, who's going to keep up with that, right? How do I know whether, you know, xyz.com has, you know, recently been hacked in my my password credentials have been lost. And I certainly don't count on these websites to tell me. But 1Password, through their Watchtower service, watches for you. And if a website you use gets compromised, they tell you. And they're like, hey, xyz.com got compromised. You better go in and change your password. And as I say that, there's probably an actual xyz.com. I'm not actually talking about them. That's an example. All right. Uh, uh, also, it lets you know with Watchtower if you've got vulnerable passwords, you know, passwords that have been exposed in a data breach because, you know, the bad guys share passwords that they've stolen from people. Well, one password, you know, they they elbow up to the bad guys long enough to get those lists and then they run it against your passwords and say, hey, you, this unique password you have is on a public database. You should probably change it. So they tell you that too. They let you know if there's reused passwords. They let you know if there's weak passwords. Uh, they let you know if there's an unsecured website, like if you're logging into a website that isn't HTTPS, they let you know and help you secure that. They even let you know if one of your logins is in a website that now has two-factor authentication, which both Stephen and I are big fans of. So with Watchtower, you get this whole service that helps you make better passwords and protect the, the websites you work with. I think it's it's a really great feature, and it's just one more thing you get with 1Password. So go today to onepassword.com slash MPU. Uh, I recommend the family plan, you know, sign up for the whole family, get everybody using good password habits and get that watchtower protection for everyone in your family. Onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps to get it. Thank you, OnePassword, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. So tell me about Keysmith. Yeah, um... Uh, listener John wrote in and said, Hey, you should check out Keysmith and it's a, another automation tool. And like, you know, that that's my kink, man. I hear automation. I got to go check it out. So uh, Keysmith is similar to, it's similar to keyboard maestro, but it's not as advanced and that's good and bad. Like, I think it's a little easier to set up simple scripts with it, but it doesn't run as deep, but it's, it's a great option I downloaded it, I played with it, I made some scripts with it, and they work just fine. But if there's things you want to do that involve a lot of mouse clicking and button pushing and keyboard maestro isn't your thing, you should check out Keysmith. They also have a way to do it with the web. And I wasn't as successful with the web automation as I was with the kind of native Mac app automation with it. An example is my billing program. It's a web service, and I couldn't get Keysmith to press the button to send the bill. Cause like, I hate the fact that when I finish a bill, I have to like take the mouse to click the button to send it. I'd rather just hit a keyboard shortcut. Um, with keyboard maestro, I do that. And keyboard maestro has the ability to look for an image on the screen. So I took a picture of the button and keyboard maestro just looks for that picture wherever it is on the screen and presses it. 
Um, the way I think Keysmith does it is it looks for math in the window, like how far is it from the upper left corner or whatever. And I was having trouble getting it to land on the button. But uh, I don't want this to be a knock. I think it's a great app and it's it's a easy to set up simple keyboard automation system. And I wasn't aware of it. So thanks, John, for sharing that. And everybody go check out Keysmith at keysmith.app. Yeah, it's cool. John wrote in um, to let me know something I was doing wrong, which I thought was uh, helpful. Uh, We talked in the Notes Roundup show about the problem with Apple Notes and not having unique identifiers for Apple Notes. And I explained how I go in one password and just generate a password, a simple password that I put the bottom of an Apple Note to make that a unique identifier. And that works, but you know, it's also kind of silly. And I, I should have known this as the guy who made the shortcuts field guide, a toolbox pro, which is an amazing app that adds a bunch of features to shortcuts. It can generate a unique identifier. You can do it with a shortcut. So I could just make a step to add a shortcut. I have to be on an iOS device to make it work, but uh, that's a much better way than the way I was doing it. And uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. We actually had the developer for Toolbox Pro on Automators a few months ago. Really nice guy and and just a really remarkable app if you're into shortcuts. Uh, Stephen, I wanted to take a minute to kind of go back to the podcast-a-thon. And we talked about the, the fundraiser earlier in the episode, but I want to talk about the technology. Uh, I think it was in the More Power Users, we uh, talked about you getting a um, Stream Deck recently, but you at the time, you weren't really sure how you were going to set up the you know remote mm-hmm. you know podcast-a-thon but at this point i know you've been working hard on figuring out the underlying technology we're nerds we're mac power users give us the scoop yeah so uh, a couple of pieces here uh the one piece is the admin stuff and we've been using trello for that it started as a list of ideas and then formed into different types of tasks or different pieces of content and then evolved again into moving the, those pieces of content onto a schedule. And so the, that Trello board has really changed a lot over the last several months, but now it is more or less a schedule of what's going to happen in each of the six hours with notes about, is this pre-recorded video? Is it video of Mike and Steven? Is it, maybe it's Steven and David Sparks is going to Skype in and here's his Skype handle. All of that stuff is is in Trello. Last year, we had stuff spread out between Google Drive and Google Sheets, and it would just it was confusing as to what went where. This has been much much better. We do have a Google Doc that's basically running meeting notes, and we have our our calls, our planning calls. But Trello is the source of truth for the 2020 Podcastathon, and I really couldn't be happier with it as a tool for that because it's it's nice on the Mac, but it's fantastic on the iPhone and iPad. So. Over the last few months, as I've had ideas for something or something, you know, comes up, I can just open some open Trello, put it in a card real quick and then move on. And the speed is is really nice as opposed to finding my Google document and finding where it goes and then all that stuff. Trello has been fantastic for it. You know, I just feel like the general you know field of online based project management stuff has come a long way in the last few years. And I'll tell you right now, we're going to cover this more in the show. Uh, we've heard a lot of people talking to us about Notion. I'm working on getting a, a good guest for Notion. And um, that's not the only one we're going to cover. And this is this is an area that's really evolving right now for people like us. Mm-hmm. I'm glad it's working for you. Yeah. 
so kind of one level from there talking about streaming and like how to get more than one person on the screen and maybe you need things from an application or a browser window. We've been using a combination of Ecamm Live, which is a Mac app written by some people who make Call Recorder. And it is a, a streaming software library that you can bring in different types of video, different audio sources, kind of mix it all together and then send it out to a bunch of different live streaming platforms. We're, we've been using Twitch, but Ecamm supports a bunch of other ones. Uh, with the Twitch integration, we could even see the comments. So we don't have to have like the website open to see comments during a live stream. It just comes into a window uh, right on the Mac. Uh, so I've been using that for the streams that I've done. And we've also been using an application called Streamlabs. It uh, is both on Windows and the Mac. And it, again, is just like a piece of software for bringing in different media from different places, whether it be pre-recorded video or a Skype video call or a call on Discord, playing a game and piping that video and audio out to Twitch or YouTube or wherever it may be. Streamlabs is free. Ecamm, you pay, I think even you pay yearly for the Ecamm software. Uh, Streamlabs is it's better on Windows. Streaming is easier on Windows, uh, especially if you're capturing video and audio from a game. Some of that gets a little tricky on Mac OS, uh, which is a shame because the Mac generally is a really good platform for <laughs> AV stuff. But um, Streamlabs is a really nice uh, free way to do this. And so as Mike and I have been doing things together, one of us will host the stream. And so I would have Streamlabs or Ecamm open with a box for my camera, a box for his Skype video or Discord video, uh, a window showing the amount of money we've raised, a text box with the URL, and then the main content of whatever we're doing. So if we're playing a game together, having that sort of as, as the centerpiece. And with these applications, it's basically drag and drop. Once you tell it, you know, I want to capture this window, I need that audio. And then you can resize them and put them where you want them on the screen in a very visual way, which is really nice. Ecamm does a better job at this than Streamlabs, I think, from the visuals uh, perspective. But you can kind of put everything together and then hit the stream button and it goes out live on Twitch. These are pretty hard on your computer. If you're using a laptop, you're going to hear the fans. It's hard on your network connection because you're uploading a bunch of video in real time. But, you know, I mean, not that long ago, you would need a whole TV station to do this sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. And now you can just do it from a computer. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. Now is the, um, the Elgato box, um, uh, stream deck, is it getting used now? I mean, have you figured out what you're going to program it in for the live feed? Yeah. So I can, uh, I can have it, switch between multiple cameras so uh i could have you know a main camera and then maybe one over my shoulder looking at something on a desk or something like that and i can use the stream deck uh to move between them and that's probably my primary use i also have it set up for with some hue lights and so i may depending on uh exactly what i need at any given time may have some lights on some smart plugs and then using the stream deck to uh, to control those or, or to use hue lights or something like that. So there's a lot of options there. So instead of digging around in software, you can just reach over and hit a button and something happens. 
Yeah, uh, Micah was talking about that black magic box last week, but it sounds to me like you're able to do that for your purposes with the Stream Deck. You don't need to go all the way in with it. Yeah, because we're we're just using like USB C cameras. You know, we're not. I mean, we're gonna we're using like 4K webcams for a lot of this, and they look good enough because we're streaming at 1080, and we're not even full screen either one of us very often. So yeah, that simplifies things as well that we don't have to have a big mixer, you know, with a bunch of 4k footage running around on HDMI. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm looking forward to watching it and participating in it. And I'm glad that you were able to, to sort out all the tech. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's been tough, right? Because last year we had a, basically a TV studio. We did it in, <laughs> and this yeah. year it's, with our own computers and and that sort of thing. And, and we've, we've been able to use the streams we've done up to this point. So if you go to stjude.org slash relay, there's a schedule of milestones and we're doing things as we raise certain amounts of money. And those really, they've been fun to do, but the reason we're doing them honestly is to, to hone in this technology to make sure that when it's time to do this for six hours, that we know what to expect, at least from the technology standpoint. Are you adding like backdrops or like doing anything else for the no. video production? No. Um, yeah. You know, we're just going to be in our spaces and Mike has a couple of different sets. So like, cause his office is much bigger than mine. So he has uh, some different areas he can be in, but no, just, you know, simple lighting, no real backdrop, uh, just kind of being where we are, you know, in a way kind of embracing that. Yeah. Like we're not trying to hide the fact that we're not together. Yeah. Good. This episode of Mac Power Users is made possible by Text Expander. You can supercharge your team with the power of Text Expander. So think about reasons Text Expander is good for an individual. Less repetition, fewer errors, greater consistency. That just becomes way more valuable when you apply it to a team. And so if you have a, a bunch of people doing customer support, you have people communicating with the public, you just have internal documentation that you need to be formatted all the same way. Text Expander for Teams can make your work as a group more consistent, more accurate, and current. Because if someone goes in and updates a uh, expansion, someone on another team goes to expand it, they're going to have the right thing, which is really cool. Uh, you can share your text and even images with the whole staff so you can work faster and smarter. You can create powerful snippets that save time uh, beyond just a simple abbreviation. You can do drop downs, you can run scripts, all sorts of things are possible with Text Expander. But with a team, it's again, it's really important to communicate effectively, efficiently with consistent language, and Text Expander makes that possible. It runs on the Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad, and show listeners will get 20% off their first year by visiting textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more. While you're at the Text Expander website, they have a lot of great resources about how to use Text Expander for uh, customer onboarding, using them in sales and CRM tasks, all sorts of great things. But you'll get 20% off your first year, textexpander.com/podcast. Our thanks to Text Expander for their support of MPU. So Stephen, what I'm playing with this month, I have been looking into the rich assortment of habit apps on my iPhone. Uh, so that's been a little side project I've been working on over the last week. What, what are some samples? Like what's a, what's a habit app? Yeah. Well, I mean, I I've been doing that with a paper and pen for a couple of years where every month I make like a sheet and I have little checks I put on it. Mm -hmm. 
but I'm I'm realizing some of the I like using the paper and pen for stuff, but I think there's some things I was getting a little too precious about. Uh, digital gives me better data, and you know, tapping it on my phone is just as easy as writing a check in a, in a paper. Except my phone is in my pocket twenty four seven and can send me reminders. So sure. I realized I I want to do this on there, and like just in general in my life, like I have like different goals and things I want to do, and the way I accomplish some of that is through projects. Like I want to be, you know, great at being Max Barkey and I'm making field guides and those are projects, but there are other things I want to do that are more habit based, but I still want to consistently do them. Like, you know, spend quality time with my, each of my daughters and things like that. And they don't really lend themselves to an omnifocus project. So I decided, Oh, I'm just going to start tracking these as habits and so I downloaded a bunch of them. Um, the one that a bunch of friends told me I need to use is Streaks. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Um, the design is very opinionated, and it just didn't really jive with me. And it's also, I think, limited to 12 habits. And the way I use this is actually there's a lot of stuff in here. You know, I take medication twice a day. I want to do that. I, you know, there, you know, There's just a lot of things I want to track with this. Uh, because I'm treating it as part of my overall system. Um, so I wanted something that could track more, but also have a nice design. And after looking at a bunch of them, the one I ended up with is an app called Productive, which I know that name, come on. <laughs> but either way, that's what it's called. It, but it's a very pretty app, and it allows you to make multiple habit tracking items. And you can be, it's got good artwork, so you can like, if you, you know, feed the dog is a habit, like in this sense, because I forget sometimes in the afternoon to feed the dog and then she starts biting me and I'm like, oh, I haven't fed you. But the, uh, but you have a little dog icon for that or meditation. You've got a little meditation icon. So you can have it look nice the way you want. You can have a habit where you run it once a day. You can have it where you run it twice a day, like in the morning, the afternoon, or like there's a certain family member. I just want to check in with every two weeks, but I want that to be a habit. So I can have it say, you know, I only need to do this once every two weeks and it can structure it that way. So I can set the timing however I want, but it's still being tracked and it's still giving me one place to go to get a reminder that I still want to do that. And then, for instance, with that family member, once I check the box that I did it, I don't see it again for another two weeks. And it doesn't nag you as much as uh, the Do app does, but I don't really want to be nagged. I just want a good place that I can check in on a daily basis and make sure I'm keeping up with my habits. And uh, after looking at a bunch of them, Productive was the one that was the winner for me. Uh, and I've been using that one under fire now for a week, and I'm really happy with it. Yeah, I agree with you about Streaks UI. It's a bit much for me. I mean, it looks good, but it's uh, it's a bit much. And having something that is more flexible than that. I think is great. This looks really nice. Uh, I think that the design is nice. I've just downloaded it. Um, I've thought about apps like this before for me. Uh, I do some daily tracking in my, you know, paper notebooks, but maybe it would be nice to have, uh, some of that stuff on my iPhone. Cause again, it's everywhere. Uh, so does productive, does it have a watch OS app? Yeah, it does. And I have to admit, I've never installed it because I just use it on the phone. Okay. Because I, I can see that being cool, right? You feed the dog and then you just tap, tap it off on your Apple Watch and you're set. I'm going to go ahead and put it on my my watch right now. I'll report back. But, okay. Um, but I mean, the really, the, the thing that kind of clicked for me on this was there's, I'm trying to always, you know, 
get to my best self, right? And there are certain things I want to do, but certain areas of my life, that problem is solved by projects. As I was saying earlier, like Max Sparky, there's a series of projects I'm doing to get to be the best Max Sparky I can be, but to be the best husband I can be, there aren't a lot of projects. I mean, there are certain, sometimes things come up where I need to make a little project to do something to help my wife, but really where I win that battle is in the day-to-day habits. And I just realized I need a separate place to track and do that stuff and and take it more seriously. And I don't know, this, this app, it's in my doc. So that, you know, there's, wow, that's something. That's cool. Although there's no badges cause I'm not crazy. Yeah. Don't, don't do that. There should be an option in there to track how many times you open it to clear the badges. Yeah. That's no fun. It's real that's meta. No fun. What about you? Anything you playing with? Man. I can't believe I'm doing this. I don't know what you've done to me in the course of almost two years of doing this oh, show no. together. Oh, no. Oh, I'm excited. Tell me. Tell me. Uh, so I've spoken about in the past about having uh, used Headspace as a like meditation oh, yeah. and, and mindfulness right. application. Because I, unlike you, David, I'm, I'm just the beginning of this journey trying to figure this out. It's been very helpful over the course of about nine months. But what I've what I've really found with with Headspace is that very often I don't want or need the coaching that is sort of the at the heart of a lot of the headspace stuff. Yeah. They yeah. have tracks in there that that don't include it, but a lot of it is around leading you through an exercise. And that's great and I found it very helpful. But I'm finding that I want another tool when I just have three or four minutes and I just want to take that time to breathe, you know, before a conference call or before a show, yeah. before a podcastathon. Mm-hmm where Headspace is too heavy of an application. And unfortunately, I'm not far enough into this discipline where I can just sit and do it on my own. I still want some sort of prompting, but I don't necessarily need coaching, right? There's there's a difference there, I think. Yeah. Um, And I came across this app called Unwind, and it is available on uh, iOS and Android, which is pretty cool. And it is a a very simple, you know, breathe in, hold, breathe out type deal. Yeah. You can customize the sounds. Um, I have, I don't even know if I have a background sound on mine, but uh, if you you can have different background sounds, you can set the time that you hold hold your breath. Like whatever the default one was, was like one second too long where I started feeling uncomfortable. And then I started thinking about holding my breath too long and not, trying to breathe, right? It's just like, yeah. okay, now I'm thinking about thinking, uh, which is a, a fun rabbit hole. And so you can tweak this as well. And I've really, uh, really come to like this. Again, Headspace is very useful. Calm, I haven't used Calm, but there are these apps that have more coaching, which are really useful while getting started. Guided meditation. Yeah, that's the f- fancy word for it. Yeah. Guided. Guided. Um, I knew there was a cool California word for it that I didn't know. But this is a little more open-ended, and I found this to be useful sort of where I am right now, kind of in learning this practice. I think uh, that's great. Honestly, I was just telling a friend recently that, you know, it's great having guided meditation, especially when you're getting started, to kind of give you an idea of what it's supposed to be. But to me, the whole process is literally about listening to your own mind. You talked earlier about how your mind goes crazy during these things. Mm -hmm. That means you're doing it right. You know, I mean, that that's the whole purpose is to kind of unpack that stuff and try and see if you can let it go and have that truly quiet mind experience. This is the hippie section of Mac power users. If yep. you're listening, 
But I mean, I've been doing it 30 years. I just was noticing that because I started in 1990, I just realized, wow, 30 years I've been on this cushion and I'm still very much a student at it too. Don't, I have not elevated to a higher plane. <laughs> I still make the same mistakes I did 30 years ago, but uh, I'm glad you found an app that helps you. If you are a Headspace subscriber and you want that, I would recommend they have unguided meditations in Headspace where it mm-hmm. just plays a bell at the beginning and a bell at the end. And I use that sometimes, or actually most of the time, because I, I don't really want somebody talking to my ear either when I meditate. I've been at it long enough. I actually get the best benefit for me is to sit quietly and observe myself and just breathe. I don't also, I don't think you should have someone telling you when to inhale and exhale. That's, that's so unnatural. You know, I I think if you've gone this far, try to do it without that at all. Just have a bell at the beginning and a bell at the end. Just count your breath. If you can't, if you get distracted, just count to 10 with each breath, but don't try and like regulate your breathing. It's supposed to be natural. And then one last recommendation, if you want just a bell at the beginning and the ending, an app that I bought years ago that I still like is called Samsara. S-A-M-S-A-R-A, and they've got customizable bells and things like that, too. But, wow, you uh, you opened a can there for me, I Stephen. Know. I'm glad you're doing it, though. I think it helps. I, I was actually embarrassed to talk about it on podcasts for a long time because I felt like people were going to be like, ah, California, rah, 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 you know, but it's becoming uh, more acceptable to people because there are really health benefits for it. You don't have to become a Buddhist to do it. You know? mm-hmm. Just, just uh, <laughs> sit with, you know, sit. I mean, how often do we sit and listen to our own mind? And uh, I think it, for me, it's always made a big difference. Okay, that's it on the more power users today. I have spent some time figuring out my video setup because I had to shoot some video in the new relocated studio. We're going to talk about the gear I'm using for that. Thank you for listening. Uh, so much feedback. Listen, to that. we're already at an hour and a half. Uh, but uh, And there's more coming. Just keep it coming. We appreciate it. We love talking to our listeners and we love sharing it on the show. Thank you to our sponsors today. That's Hover, Red Sweater Software, 1Password, and Smile. And we will see you next week.